This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery's Conversation Series, Episode 6. We are talking to artist Kerry Polinus. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery's Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, Senior Curator Danny Lacey talks to artist Kerry Polinus about her landscape paintings and video work for Coast, the Artist's Retreat. Kerry was an artist-in-residence at Police Point in 2017, and she explored the different environments of the peninsula's back beaches. We find out more about how she grew up in Frankston and founded Store 5 in 1989, an independent artist-run space with a focus on abstraction. Kerry talks about having a DIY attitude to her work and how her trademark diamond landscape paintings began. Thanks for joining us today, Kerry. Hi, Danny. (laughs) First of all, it'd be great to hear about when and how you first started making work and were you creative growing up? Yeah, I always liked making things and drawing from when I was really young. It was something I did a lot of. I guess when I first started making art was... I did a foundation year in year 12 rather than VCE at the time. It was called TOP, Tertiary Orientation Program. So I started making art in year 12, I suppose. And then I had two years away from universities and things because to qualify for something called Tertiary Education Assistance Scheme, which was, you know, like a funding, like an income, you had to be away from an institution for two years. So for two years after year 12, I was making work while I was working in all kinds of jobs. I had about 28 jobs or something, getting a folio together with the intention of going to art school. And what happened when you got to art school? Was it as you expected? No, it wasn't because I went to CIT, which is Caulfield, which is now where Monash is. And I wanted to do painting and I'd already started doing abstract paintings at that time. And they didn't like the paintings. But the reason I got in was because I continued to do life drawing and they liked the life drawings. So I got in on the strength of that. But there was one lecturer who was great, Craig Goff, who was quite supportive. But basically, they didn't want me to make abstract work and I wasn't allowed to. They just kept failing me and saying, no, you can't paint abstract paintings. And so I swapped art schools halfway through the course and moved to Victoria College in Paran, where there was people like Bob Jacks and Leslie Dumbrell, who were fantastic and very supportive of abstract art. It's probably the other way around now in yeah, art well schools. That, that must have been a big change from having an environment where you weren't supported at all making that type of work to a, an institution where some very well-known artists working there and really supportive of abstract art. How did that support help the development of your practice at that time? In lots and lots of ways. It was kind of a bit like there were the lecturers, there was Bob Jackson, Leslie Dumbrell, so they were actually able to talk the same language in terms of abstraction, which was what I was interested in. But there was also other students who were interested in what I was interested in. That's where I met Melinda Harper and Gary Wilson as well. So it was a bit like finding your tribe or something like that. So the whole realm of conversations and the world of art shifted significantly (laughs) with that change. Just stepping back for a moment, what was the 
original interest in abstract work? Where did that interest come from? Mm, Okay. Look, I think it probably went a really long way back. And I remember when I was a child growing up in Frankston, having pocket money and going on the weekends down to the shop that sold rocks and gemstones and things and looking in the window at these beautiful things called thunder eggs that we couldn't afford and going home and drawing them drawing these forms and shapes that were these idealized thunder eggs that we couldn't afford and trying to connect that I don't know if you know those rocks but inside they've got forms and shapes and it's a bit like a and abstract. It's like a curvy Frank Stella, some of them. I remember doing lots and lots of drawings and the whole thing of it being immersive and actually making the works was kind of more interesting than probably having them. And that's always stuck in my mind, that whole thing of being immersed in creating something that has its own environment within it or potential within it. It must have been quite refreshing to get to a point where you were surrounded by colleagues that were passionate about similar interests. Can you talk a little bit about the time leading up to Store 5 and around that time? Store 5 came out of necessity because I guess what we were all making, part of our practices were to exhibit the work just as much as it was to make it. And so, you know, there was no galleries in Melbourne then, commercial galleries and things that were actually kind of interested in that kind of work. There wasn't as many public art places. This is, what, 1989. So we just decided to open our own gallery. That way we could put our work up and show each other and talk about it and have little exhibition party type things. Yeah, and that, I guess, DIY attitude Yes. Yep. is very strong in the Melbourne art scene and mm. feels like it always has been from the 80s onwards. Yeah, I guess um, that's always been a really big part of my work, the DIY aspect and culture. It's always been about, like, well, why wait till something arrives? Just create it yourself. So that attitude was how Store 5 was started, really. And back in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, the punk movement was starting. And so all of that influenced my background anyway. I had a lot to do with going and seeing bands at the time. And I remember listening to 3RMIT radio back in 1977 in Frankston. And that was one of the things that inspired me to begin being interested in art and going out into the broader world and uh, I always remember that radio station and that was kind of like a do-it-yourself radio station that played do-it-yourself music and bands and things that turned into 3 R eventually. Listening to that must have been a beacon of hope perhaps growing up in Frankston. What did that offer you? Did you see that as an opportunity to get out of Frankston or that opportunity to get out and study and to have other experiences I started going up to the city on the weekends at quite an early age, hitchhiking up to Melbourne to see bands and things like that in Carlton and go to different places. And, you know, Frankston just became more and more more strange. What are some of your memories of Store 5 and some of the exhibitions that were put on there? Uh, In terms of your work, how did your work develop at that time in terms of exhibiting the actual work itself? 
instead of making works that were objects that were about themselves, it became about installing objects in a space and the whole environment, it being an experience and more experiential than, you know, being contained within an object. And when Store 5 started, I was already making um, little diamond paintings on perspex and arranging them, using them as objects to make works with like a set of toys or tools or something to construct works with. So having a space in which to do that, that became like a studio, the whole thing of exhibiting as much as a studio practice. Mm. might ask you about the landscape paintings. When did they first start and how did they come about? Well, in about 1988, I was already making geometric abstract work and I decided to do an experiment where I'd restrict my work to just one shape and chose the diamond shape because I liked it, basically, and diagonal lines. And I thought it would just last a couple of months, but I'm still working in that mode 30 years later. And the landscape paintings came out of a project where I was invited to make a work for Herring Island. And my um, daughter was just born at the same time. And I decided to make 100 red diamonds and put them up trees on Herring Island because it was a great opportunity to be able to do something like that because it was isolated, so the work was safe and it was also outside. So what I did was looked at the diamonds that I've been making and took them outside and worked out a shape and a size, a proportion of a diamond that seemed to work in the landscape and relate to the landscape and wasn't too big and wasn't too small and came up with a particular scale that seemed to relate to trees and things like that and made a hundred of those works. Then after that exhibition, My daughter wouldn't sleep when she was a baby and so I used to put her in the car and go for a drive and she'd always go to sleep in the car. So I'd take a bunch of paintings and have them in the back of the car and go for a drive and set them up places and have exhibitions that nobody would see and arrange them in the landscape. And so then that kind of evolved into me thinking about places and perhaps particular colours of diamonds working in those places or relating to those places and coming out of those places. So what happened was I'd be spending a lot of time in the landscape and I got to thinking about how all my life I'd spent a lot of time in the landscape. And I think that with landscape painting and the history of landscape painting, these artists that went outside and spent time in the landscape It wasn't just about representing what they saw. They actually understood where they were. If you spend enough time in one place, sitting there, all kinds of things happen and you get to know a place. So I started thinking about the landscape painting works as about relating to the landscape rather than trying to represent it and making particular colours for particular places. And your work that you've made for the Coast Exhibition Mm. is an extension of that. Can you talk a little bit about your experience being down on the back beaches? And Mm. we went down to Cape Shank and walked along Gunnamatta and St Andrew's Mm -hmm. back beach as well. Can you talk a little bit about the work in the exhibition? So that was really nice to come back to the Mornington Peninsula. And I hadn't been to any of those back beaches for quite a long time. When I was at art school in Frankston doing year 12, spent most of my time not in the art school but with friends at the beach going surfing and that kind of thing. So we were always at Point Leo or Gunnamatta or whatever. And so going back to those places, I was remembering how wild it was 
And for the last 25 years, I've spent every summer at Point Lonsdale, which is on the other side of the peninsula, and looked back across at Point Nepean. And the sea and the coast really fascinate me. I think it's kind of a really exciting place. It makes me feel like there's a sense of freedom or excitement. And I think that's why people kind of do risky things at the beach as well. It's exhilarating. So it was amazing to go and see all these beaches that I hadn't seen for a really long time and go back and see that in the context of knowing Point Lonsdale really well. We started a friends group at Point Lonsdale the year before my daughter was born, so that's 18 years ago, 19 years ago, for the coastal system, the dune system called Buckley Park that goes from Point Lonsdale to Ocean Grove. And so during that time I've become quite familiar with a lot of the vegetation and geology and the whole dune system of how oceans work. So having time to explore and see that coast where I'd kind of grown up and had these memories without knowing much really about the landscape and not being that interested in it, it was fantastic. A great opportunity to revisit some of those spaces that you mm. spent time at when you were younger. Can you talk a little bit about the video work in the exhibition and how that has come about? With putting the landscape paintings in the landscape and documenting them, it somehow kind of seemed wrong at the beach. It seemed like it was missing an element, which is time. So I decided to make some films instead of just documenting the exhibitions with still photography. And I've increasingly been making more and more films, I guess, over the last 20 years. Uh, lots of films are usually time-lapse of works being made, so the works have a kind of performative element. And so I started thinking about the idea down the beach as the paintings in the landscape being a kind of performance and that they were still and there was all these other things that were going on around them, like the sea moving, the tide coming in and out, people walking past. And documenting that so that the works were still and everything else was moving around them and including the aspect of duration and time and seeing what would happen. So things started to happen, like the tide came in and knocked them over. Birds would come along and peck and things would fall down and people would pick them up or interrupt the exhibition and it just became part of the elements that the work was in. And I think it relates more to the whole idea of being in the landscape, which is what the work is about, rather than trying to represent the landscape. It'd be great to hear about your involvement with the Living Museum of the West, which you've had um, a long involvement with, mm. and maybe also to hear how that has potentially tied into this project or influenced this project. I should probably talk about how I became involved in the Living Museum and what it is. Nearly every artist has a part-time job, I think. Nobody makes a living out of... Not many people make a living out of art in Australia. So in 1992, rather than continue to work in restaurants and that kind of thing, an opportunity came up for a work placement in a museum in the western suburbs. And so I went over to see what this was all about and found out that it was an experimental museum that was started up by Joan Kerner a historian called Olwen Ford, and some Swedish people in 1984. And it was based on an idea, which was a do-it-yourself cultural idea, similar to what I was already interested in in Store 5, about do-it-yourself museums. So the idea was that it was based on a fellow called Sven Lindquist, who is a Swedish 
writer and academic who wrote a book in the late 1970s, I think, called Dig Where You Stand, How to Do Research in a Job. And it's based on the idea that um, everybody has a story and everybody's story is important and people are experts in their own job and everybody's story contributes to a broader collective history and history belongs to everybody. And the idea came out of his father, I believe, who worked in a cement factory and he started researching the history of the cement factory and found that the history of the cement factory was quite different to his father's experience, that it was written by factory management, and there was a big part of the history missing. And he found the same thing in various other factories in South America. I think he went there afterwards to research and decided that this was so big he'd write an instruction manual called Dig Where You Stand, How to Do Research on a Job. So in 1984, there was a couple of Swedish people in Melbourne who got together with Joan Kerner and explained this concept, and they decided to start a museum in the western suburbs of Melbourne and document people's stories, people who had migrated or worked in factories and all kinds of people. And the museum was about collecting stories and helping people document their own history. The mission statement of the museum is about people doing their own history. So, of course, the Aboriginal history of Melbourne has been recorded at the museum by Aboriginal people. And I became really interested in this idea because, to me, there's always been such a fabricated history of Australia and art history as well that this actually seemed like a place that was real and doing something real about this whole idea of documenting our history and the missing histories of Australia. So I became involved in the Living Museum and started working there and stayed. And I'd be working with all kinds of different people, archaeologists, historians, Aboriginal cultural officers, arts officers, scientists. So I kind of got used to working in a multidisciplinary environment and found that things that I'd learnt to do as an artist were of use to particular projects. So one of the projects I worked on was with Larry Walsh, the Aboriginal Cultural Officer, designing an exhibition called Still Here about the history of Aboriginal people in Melbourne's West. And that was a kind of huge learning curve for me. All of a sudden I was getting a real education, which I hadn't got in Frankston, or at art school really, in terms of Australia and understanding its history, etc., and where we were. And so what has influenced my work, I guess, the most from the museum is the whole idea of participation and involving other people in art projects. So I started writing instruction manuals after beginning work at the museum. And the landscape painting project is becoming more participatory And I guess the whole thing of setting up exhibitions at the ocean and letting people and things become involved is kind of part of that process as well and looking at how that might happen and how that might extend and expand from there. You spent some time down at the Police Point Artist in Residency when you were making the work for the Coast Exhibition. What was it like being down at the cottage and how did that help you produce the work that you made? It was fantastic being at the cottage. It was great because um, once I became orientated, I was able to explore all the beaches and find where they were and plan where I wanted to make work and have exhibitions. And so I kept the works that I was making within a fairly close radius 
to that part of the coast uh, so that I could revisit and get used to different things. It was just far too quick. <laughs> I could have spent a month there easily. So I had a fairly rigorous production period down there. So it ended up being incredibly busy where I'd get out early in the morning to catch the tides and the weather and set up the works and then have all the equipment working and then have to go back and download the footage and check that it was all okay and often it wasn't. So it was fairly busy. It would have been nice to spend more time there and just settle into the area, but um, it was, yeah, fantastic. What are some of your reflections of that coastline between Cape Shank and Point Nepean, having been down at the residency and made work at various locations along that coastline? It's incredibly diverse. That really surprised me. There's so many places along that coast that are so themselves. It's not like there's one place. It's not a cohesive place. It's made up of a lot of different places. So Cape Shank is volcanic. You know, there's lava has come out and it has these amazing blue stones that are solidified lava that are round. So that has a completely different feel to it than somewhere like St Andrews. It has this odd sandstone shelf that's just out from the dune system that turns into a river and then there's places like London Bridge, which is, you know, slowly eroding and has this amazing cave and an incredibly deep point off the side of it. So I would say that they're all very different. And every time I look at a new place, it was always very different to the last one. So it turned into something that could be a really long-term project that um, I had to do very quickly. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today, Kerry. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to episode six of our conversation series. Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is the region's major cultural facility and is supported by Mornington Peninsula Shire and other partners. Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. Our 2018 podcast program is supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation. In the next episode, Danny will be talking to another coast artist, Rafat Ishak. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode.